Good morning, or afternoon, or drive time, whatever. Uh, Welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne. Today, we're going to talk about management versus training, when management is necessary, when it's not necessary, when it becomes onerous, when it's rational and sane. Uh, there's a little bit of an idea in dog training that if you manage a behavior rather than training it, that you are kind of taking the cheater's way out or using lazy training. And there is something to be said for some of that. I, I agree. But at the same time, we have to understand that management is a really valuable tool. And we're being managed as human beings all the time. So first, what, what is management? Management is changing the environment in such a way as to keep your dog away from something they find triggering or frightening or something that they wish to interact with inappropriate, say, uh, removing the cords in the house so your dog doesn't eat the cords and blow up the house and kill themselves. That's management. Um, and, And there are times and places when management are sensible and reasonable. And the example I'm going to use is a bank. So we're human beings and theoretically we're really smart and we can be trained well. That's what our parents do for the first 20 years of our lives or school or both. And that training, one would think 20 years would be sufficient for us to understand that we shouldn't just walk by and rob banks. However, having said that, banks don't set their money out on the street corner in big stacks. Uh, They don't expect training alone to keep us away from the money. They understand the level of temptation that's involved. And because of that, they put the money in buildings. And then, still understanding that we're pretty smart animals, they put the money behind closed doors. They put, them, they put up alarm systems. They put them in safes, et cetera. That's management. Uh, yeah, we are trained not to rob banks. But at the same time, banks don't rely entirely on that training because of the level of enticement that would be required for us to fight every single time we drove by a bank. So there can be combinations of management and training. And that's what we're going to talk about today is when is when do we manage? When do we train? When do we manage and train? So first, let's talk a little bit about when we use management. One of the big the big situations where we use management is when dogs are fearful of situations. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up this week is that it happens to be the 4th of July weekend here in the U.S., and that is a big fireworks week, which means that everybody is now on social media going, oh my God, it just now occurred to me again after a year that my dog is frightened of fireworks. What do I do? Well, it's too late to do any training. Now, that training window has long since passed. You are left with management only. So in the case of fireworks, phobias, if your dog's frightened of fireworks, gunshots, really loud noises, what have you, uh, and you wait until three days prior to the holiday wherein those fireworks will go off, you are stuck with managing the situation. And by managing, I'm talking about adding drugs to your dog's regimen so that your dog is too stoned to care anti-anxietal so they're not frightened, uh, placing the dog in the center of the house so that the noises are uh, diminished, keeping them away from the light show as it were, uh, placing them um, in a location that has music, 
All of those things are management. Now, do I personally feel that management is sufficient in this case? No, I think it's, I do think that it's the lazy way out. Uh, you had a year to train your dog to handle fireworks. So at this point, my argument would be, well, you waited too long and now you're screwed and you're stuck with management, but really for next year, you need to plan ahead and teach your dog that the fireworks won't kill them. You, it's, you can't necessarily train a dog to love fireworks, but you could certainly train your dog that fireworks won't kill them. And so that's where management and training kind of come together. Um, here's another, another situation. So I have a friend of mine who is frightened that when we mountain bike, she's frightened that she's going to run over a rattlesnake and get bitten on her mountain bike. And that's not an unfounded fear here in Arizona at the times when we ride. So what she does is she places me in front because I'm not really frightened of snakes. And what that does is she, she's still out. She's still enjoying herself. She's still mountain biking on dirt trails where rattlesnakes do in fact nap in the middle of the trail, but she's able to manage her fear by placing me in front so that I can call out snake when and I have, I, I didn't run over a rattlesnake. I ran over a little rat snake and I felt bad, but he wasn't injured, at least not noticeably. Um, he was, however, incredibly pissed off. Uh, and I did call out snake to her as I accidentally ran it over. She did feel that was a bit late, but she didn't run it over. So it's all good. So anyway, that's management. And there's nothing wrong with her decision to not spend the rest of her life counter conditioning and desensitizing herself to rattlesnakes so that she's less frightened of them. Uh, she's found a way to manage her life and her environment in such a way. And the, the fear isn't debilitating. It's not like she doesn't go outside from April through October here to avoid rattlesnakes. She simply makes choices that align with her ability to cope with the environment which is filled with snakes in her in a safe and reasonable manner. Counter surfing. So this is an issue I deal with a lot with dogs and people really feel very kind of uh, upset when you tell them that the answer to avoiding teaching your dog to counter surf in the first place is to manage your dog. So Oh, they feel just affronted because it's like, well, can't you train this? Well, yes, I can train this, but it's better to train. It's easier to train if your dog doesn't have a learning history of having found some amazing shit on the counter, especially if we're going to stay in the positive reinforcement realm of things and not head to punishment. So the example I usually give is, is a casino. If you walk into a casino and the very first time you, you pull the lever on the slot machine, you win a Ferrari. Okay. You walk into a casino, you put a quarter in the machine, you pull the button or you push the button, you pull the little lever and you win a Ferrari. Are you going to push the button on every single one of those machines every single time you see it? for the rest of your life? Probably. You'd be foolish not to. Your learning history is such that you're, you're going to be really eager to keep pressing that button to see if you can win another Ferrari. If, on the other hand, you go into a casino and you play for three straight hours and never, ever win a damn thing, I'd probably be hard-pressed to get you into a casino again to play that game because it just it hasn't paid off for you. 
Same thing with countersurfing. If I have decided that I'm going to, that my dog should quote unquote know better, just like we should quote unquote know better than to rob banks. And I leave a steak sitting out on a counter for my young puppy who happens to be tall enough to reach it. And I'm shocked and horrified when my young puppy climbs on the counter and steals that steak. Now I'm in a situation where I've set my dog up for failure because of my poor management skills. And now my puppy, like that casino goer, is going to press that lever every single time. And now I'm stuck in a situation where I'm going to have to really manage my my dog. And I'm going to have to really get pretty pretty hardcore on my training, either using punishment or lots of positive reinforcement. But honestly, you could hand out $100 bills in front of that casino every day and say, don't go in, I'll pay you 100 bucks. And honestly, that's only going to work for so long because you've won a freaking Ferrari. So that's a situation where management is what we use while we're doing the training to ensure success in the training. So here's another example I'm going to give. So I have a dog, one of my border collies, doesn't like children. He kind of is a little squirrely around them. And I really honestly would never trust him around a a young child. I don't have young children. I don't uh, have any friends except for my neighbor who has young children. They're not a part of my life. So am I going to spend years probably in his case, because he's a little bit of a nut job to start with, to desensitize and counter condition this dog enough to trust him. And that is a strong word, trust with a child. I barely trust the dogs who are good with children with children. I mean, children, uh, it doesn't take much to injure a child with a dog. And so I'm super cautious with kids and dogs, period. And I, the word trust is something I really struggle with, with most dogs and kids. But what I do with Dice, if the neighbor comes over with her child, is I put him away. He doesn't have to interact. He doesn't have to deal with the devil's child. He does the loudness and the upsetting for a border collie. He doesn't like it. Why deal with it? Why put him in that situation? So in that case, I'm completely managing the situation. I've done Zippo on training. Uh, It's not worth it for me to focus on children. Now, I focused on his overall fear of other human beings, and he's a, a lot, lot, lot better with human beings, strange people. But with kids, it's not worth it for me. I would never trust him. I don't want to have to trust him. And I don't have any kids running around my house. So I don't have to train that behavior. I can simply manage it away the few times a month when the neighbor's kid is is up at the house. Thunderstorms. So this is one that I really struggle with. Thunderstorms. In southern Arizona, this time of year, it's the beginning of July, we start getting what we call monsoon season, which is a season that theoretically lasts three months, give or take, and is the highlight of which is that we get really massive thunderstorms in the evenings as the clouds build up in the heat. And I have found personally that thunderstorm phobia, which is much more prevalent in the breeds of dogs that I happen to own, is something that's almost, I've found very, very difficult to desensitize to. Because uh, it is very difficult for you to completely mimic the thunderstorm, the entire, everything that surrounds the thunderstorm. So here, not only are there all the pressure changes and electrical changes that maybe a dog feels that I cannot feel, but on top of that, we've got the winds, we've got the clouds, we've got the smell. The smell is different here. It's a beautiful smell, the smell of rain. 
all of that and then lightning and thunder and the lightning and thunder can be close enough that it literally shakes the building. I can't mimic that. I, there's no way to desensitize my dogs to that situation appropriately. And so in that case, I'm going to use almost entirely management. That doesn't mean that when they're puppies, I don't make an effort to create a positive association between thunder. I'll use thunder, say, as an example. I'll use thunder as a marker cue for food or for play. I try to go out in thunderstorms when they're not super close. And maybe that's when I take the dogs and do herding so that they associate the sound, which they probably don't even hear because they're focused on the sheep, with something good so that it, it... possibly partially desensitizes them to the thunderstorm. But to completely desensitize them and to do it in the totally controlled and reasonable way that you'd need to do it to effectively desensitize a dog to thunderstorms, I just don't see that being terribly possible. So I use a lot of management. So when I get a thunderstorm and it's really loud and I have dogs who are telling me that they're fearful, then I will put them in, a, in an interior room of my house with music and allow them that chance to kind of just feel safe there. So in that case, I'm completely using management. Yes, there's a little bit of background training, but it's not the systematic desensitization and counter conditioning that I would use, say, for fireworks, uh, where I can control the sound and the distance of a firework. So that's a place where that makes sense to me to use management. Recall. Uh, This is another thing where people get really upset. Why doesn't my dog call or come when called? He should come. He should love me. This should be built into all dogs. It's not. So when you're training a dog who has a history of blowing you off on coming when called, that's not the time to set up the dog for a situation where the dog is going to make a poor decision. So when I just, um, and I think I did this, and I think I did a podcast about this a few months ago, back when I did the last podcast. Yes, it's been a long time. My apologies. I got a new puppy. Her name is Matilda, and she's a little wild animal. Uh, she's a border collie. Oh my God, but she's completely unlike all my other border collies. I call her the ferret. She's just constantly in motion. She, one of the behaviors that she came with that was really quite enjoyable was she would not only ignore recalls, she would like flip you the bird. She'd stand three feet away from you, you'd call her and she'd be like, peace out, I'm leaving. And that's really kind of hateful behavior. (laughs) It's really hard not to get very angry at your dog for that. And so I had to go back to the beginning. I had to train the recall all over again. I had to do everything right. And the other thing I did is I put her on a long line. She spent her first several weeks here on a long line, both indoors and outdoors, because I can't have a dog who, if I let them out the door, goes running down to the sheep and I have to trap them while like a wild animal to get them back. So it was just, nope, you don't get to have these choices. You you are grounded effectively until we can train this behavior. Now, I didn't leave her on a long line for life. I left her on a long line for three weeks. And now I can call her off pretty much anything, including the sheep, as long as she's not in with the sheep. If she's in the corral with the sheep, well, then all bets are off. But we're still working on that. I'm not going to write that off. What that means is right now I'm managing that situation. She's not permitted in with the sheep unless she's on a long line. And if she's not on a long line, then she's not in with the sheep. And 
that means I'm watching her because she is still pretty much small enough to squinkle in through the fencing. She's pretty committed to going in with the sheep. So it's a combination of management and training. But eventually, the goal is, of course, she's a border collie, she should be able to call off sheep. I mean, that's her job description, is that if I call you and you're on sheep, you should come off a sheep. So that's a big thing with recall. And again, a lot of times our emotions get into this and it's like, well, but he should. Well, we should be able to walk by a bank that has all their bills stacked in corners on the road and have self-control, but we wouldn't. Um, and I'm going to say we here, I'm not, this is not judgment. This is not morals. This is life. If you had a huge bill or you're looking down a really scary situation where you're going to lose your home and you're walking down the road and some dumbass has left a stack of bills sitting on the corner of the street, you'd kind of be stupid and ill-serving yourself to not just grab them. So this isn't about morals or ethics. This is about reasonable precautions for high value objects or situations. Um, another place I like to manage that uh, I think becomes very fraught is doorways. So um, often I'm called out for this particular behavior, which is dogs rushing, barking, jumping, being just flagrant idiots at the door. And there are a lot of, there's myriad reasons for this. And so what's important first is always to find out why is the dog like this? Is the dog running, rushing to the door because the dog thinks that everybody is their best friend and they want to greet them and jump on them and be happy idiots? Or they're rushing for the door because they're being attacked once again by the vicious UPS man and they need to drive him away before he invades the house and murders everybody in their sleep. Uh, so we do need to know why the dog does the behavior. But while we're solving the problem, and we do need to solve the problem, I can't imagine living in a house where every time somebody rang the doorbell, my dogs went completely ballistic. That would be exhausting. We have to manage the behavior. We have to manage the situation. So the very first thing that we do is we don't allow dogs to have access to the door when we open it. So yeah, you can't you can't lock your dogs down to the point where they're never having access to the door because then they'd be in a crate 24-7 in the event that maybe the UPS guy comes by. But if you know you have friends coming over, you put your dog in a crate in the bedroom and then you address the situation over time. So yes, you train the behavior, but in the meantime, you do not permit the dog to continue practicing the behavior that you don't want to see. So that is... I think really important and relevant to understand is that there, there are absolutely times when management becomes a very important tool in the training process. And so I don't, I don't like to look at it as a crutch. It's not something that we use in, in most cases, in lieu of training. And now some people can. I mean, you can, like I said, I'm using it in lieu of training for dice with, with the neighbor's child because it's not worth it for me to make those kinds of changes to, to try to make him trust. And again, I don't, I really would struggle to have any dog trustworthy with a, with a kid and especially a dog who's sketchy like dice. So, um, those are the places that I think that management can be really effective. Now there's a, Double-edged sword to management. As we talked about before, if your bank closes off the entire city center and you have to perform 50 different or provide 50 different forms of ID to get into your bank and a full cavity search, well, now management has become onerous and they are affecting the quality of your life. And that can happen to dogs. And it happens often. 
too often. I mean, I think once is too many times. So I'll give you a couple examples of that. The first example would be a dog who is so frightened or upset by the environment that the owner goes to the veterinarian and gets drugs to help the dog, quote unquote, relax. And in drugs alone without training, I think are very ethical backwater that we have to be very cautious with. And I'm not talking about short-term event medications. So short-term event medications would be the things like trazodone or Valium that you would use for thunderstorms or car rides or the groomer, things that your dog faces occasionally, but they need to have that little bit of help with. Those are considered event uh, medications. But the other option are just kind of lifestyle medications. Those would be, if you're, if you're familiar with Prozac or the SSRIs, there are a bunch of those types of drugs out there. And the problem with some of those drugs is they have an ex- incredibly high sedative effect on some dogs, just depending on the, the drug and the dosage in the dog. And what my fear is and what I've seen is I've seen people go into the veterinarian and maybe their veterinarian is not well versed in in behavior cases. There's no local behaviorist to refer to. They're very rare in the United States. And they the owners at their last straw and they're talking euthanasia or whatever. And so they they prescribe and I'm not I'm not blaming the veterinarian here. Um, they prescribe an SSRI or they prescribe something for the dog and it doesn't work because at a dosage that would be appropriate for the dog. You need to continue to train the dog. You cannot just give this drug and hope for the best. That's not how these medications were designed. They're designed to be used in conjunction with training. So the owner comes back and of course says, hey, this isn't working by itself. And so the veterinarian says, well, you know, you can give more. Well, so what ends up happening is you keep giving more until the dog's now kind of gorked out all the time. And to me, that has, that, that has really high ethical concerns and is ethically suspect. That is not a fair and appropriate life for that dog. And everybody was trying their best. It's not about people being mean or, or making bad choices on purpose. It's about everybody feeling that they had no other options, not having the tools at their disposal to fix the dog and help the dog through whatever the dog was dealing with and frustration on the owner's part. And again, this is not a judgment. This is, you know, we all feel frustration. Um, I mean, it happens all the time, but it's just, it was a confluence of bad situations, but I'm seeing a lot of people reaching right away for drugs and I, I do get very concerned that a lot of dogs are living lives that aren't full because the owners and the veterinarians um, and sometimes behaviorists or dog trainers chose a route of least resistance. Because management can be a very self-rewarding solution to a problem. Uh, you know, building a a good fence to keep my dogs away from the chickens is very rewarding. Uh, I didn't train anything. It was very easy. I just put up a fence and said, stay away from the fence. And the fence is is strong enough to keep the dogs away and I'm done. Problem solved. So it can be very rewarding. And so I, I do 
worry about that level of management and how it's, it could be detrimental to the long-term life of our dog. The other place that we see this is with dogs who are what we refer to as leash reactive. What leash reactive means is reactive simply means that the dog overreacts to pretty much a neutral stimuli. So that's fancy language for uh, your dog is walking down the street, your dog sees another dog, they're a human being, and they completely lose their shit. They jump, they bark, they lunge, they act like slathering maniacs and they're embarrassing for the handler obviously and it can be a dangerous situation if when if they pull the leash out of your hand or they make the handler fall over if they attack or uh, the other dog or the human being all of those can lead to a very poor outcome for the dog and, and anybody concerned so this is not something to be taken incredibly lightly having said that however um, a lot of of times not a lot of times but there are times when the solution is simply not to take the dog for a walk anymore. And then because the dog's no longer taken on a walk anymore, now the dog needs to spend more time in the backyard because the dog is destroying the house. And well, you know, we're managing the situation of taking the dog for a walk was an easy solution. So rather than deal with the dog's rambunctiousness in the house, we'll manage that away too by chucking him in the backyard. Problem solved. We don't care what he destroys in the backyard. And now the dog's quality of life has fallen to the point where ethically, again, we're probably in a, in a pretty grim place. So we want to be cautious with that as well. Now, having said that, this is not a judgment on people whose dogs live part of their lives outside. Um, many dogs live great lives outside. And as long as there's appropriate amount of interaction with their human beings, there's plenty to do. Uh, people spend it, you know, if you go outside a lot, um, then having an, in, in, uh, an outside dog is totally appropriate and fine. I'm talking about a dog who's been shunted outside while the family continues to live their lives inside. And the only interactions they really have with the family are very brief um, and kind of not really positive for the dog in that there's no training, there's no real strong interactions. There's, it, it's a very bleak and kind of empty lifestyle. So again, this is not about indoor versus outdoor. This is about a particular situation. I believe that dogs can live outdoors and be completely happy and fulfilled. And I believe that because I own those dogs. So, but we know what we're talking about when we're thinking about a dog who's just been shunted outside because every other behavior is so untenable that the owners can't handle it. And so they're just like, I'm done with this dog, but they don't want to rehome the dog or train the dog. Or maybe they don't know how to train the dog and they don't know their resources. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to always blame the human beings for this because sometimes, you know, life happens and people get dogs with the idea that they remember their childhood dog and everything about that dog was perfect and this dog's a blazing idiot and it, they're embarrassed and, and feel judged or what have you. And so they may not seek out help or they may not be able to afford help. So uh, we need to be very cautious about using management in a situation or in a manner that makes our dogs' lives small and too small for our dogs to really enjoy their lives. Um, I think, oh, the last thing I was going to bring up is there is a rule in dog training that management always fails. We repeat this all the time to one another because it's really important to understand. 
management will always fail. There will be times when you can't get home in time to put your dog in the center of the house for to protect him from the thunderstorms. There will be times when my chickens commit suicide by jumping over the edge of the of the chicken coop and into the waiting jaws of my dogs. Management always fails. The reason we say this is because there are places and times when a failure of management can have horrific outcomes. And so it's important to always understand that if you are in fact managing a behavior and that behavior has an outcome that would be untenable, that we have to address that in some additional way. So an example would be if I owned an indoor cat and one of my dogs wanted to kill the cat. I mean, there's like no question the emotional state of my dog would be shredded cat bits for dinner. That is a, and and I don't want to train. Let's say I don't want to train or I don't feel like training or it's just not worth it for me. And so my solution is the cat lives in one room and the dog lives in another room. There will be a time when I will screw that up. We are human beings and we are not perfect, especially if we live in a family of more than one person, if children are involved or elderly people with, you know, mental impairment or anything along those lines or just life in general and being rushed and busy. There'll be a time when you close the door and you thought the door latched and it didn't latch and the cat noses its way into the living room and you come home to a, a bloodbath. That is not a tenable management situation, in my in my opinion. That is not fair to, well, the cat, or um, especially if the cat understands that that dog wants to kill them. I mean, a lot of times in dog-on-dog aggression cases, there have been enough attacks by the aggressor dog on the victim dog that even if you're managing that situation with double doorways and everything like that, that other dog recognizes that they're effectively living with an axe murderer. And that is not a tenable situation for the other dog. I don't think, I don't think that's fair to the other dog to live in a situation where they know that at any moment out of the blue, they could be attacked by a fellow resident dog that they smell and they hear and they know is still in the building. So when you are using management in a situation where the outcome is not just undesirable, but could be have fatal consequences. You have to recognize that management will, there will always be a time when shit goes sideways and you have to have a plan in, in action to deal with that. And you have to recognize that, that outcome. You have to accept it. So one of the examples that we talk about in the dog training community and debate often are true aggression cases. Like these are dogs who will just flat kill somebody. Uh, given an opportunity and whether or not ethically it's a it's per, it's permissible to allow these dogs back into society and well and the argument is as well if you manage this dog you know if you get six foot tall fences and you never have people over and you know the dog bonds to one person and blah 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 then it's okay to have Cujo the murdering axe murdering psycho dog living in town Whereas the other end of this argument is you will, ma- you will fail. Management will fail. There will be a time when one of the neighbor kids is kicking the soccer ball and it flies over your fence and they climb it. They don't realize your dogs are murdering psychopath and your dog kills a kid. 
is that outcome acceptable? And for me, the answer is very clear, and the answer is absolutely not. Um, and if, if a management situation fails, causes the death of a child, a human being, um, probably another pet, a dog, I really, really struggle with that, with that outcome. Having said that, I also said that my chickens occasionally jump the fence and have a poor outcome. <laughs> So yes, there is a certain amount of hypocrisy in what I'm saying. Um, I, I can live with the occasional accidental chicken homicide on my property. Um, that's not a preferred outcome, obviously. That is far from a desired situation. However, um, if the option is to never have any chickens and or never have any dogs, I really, I, that's not a balance I'm willing to take. So I get fat, heavy chickens. I no longer buy baby chicks because they go through a stage when they can fly and I'm down to three chickens and I won't buy more chickens until I have a roof that I can rely on. So there are very low to no chances of management failure. The other thing is, is I'm also training in the background. So at this point, if a chicken gets out, 99% of the time, my dogs, A, have learned to ignore the chicken coop because nothing good ever comes from it. And B, they kind of are starting to understand that maybe they shouldn't eat chickens after all. That is a bad call. Now I have a new puppy, Matilda, on the property, and I suspect that would not go that would not go appropriately. So we do have to balance the understanding of how management works and when it works and when it will be successful, when it leads to a lifestyle that is what we're willing to live with with our dog and what we're willing to impose on our dog versus society and versus other housemates. Um, as an example, I would never own a dog who wanted to kill my husband. Um, that, that would not be a, a a situation that I would ever accept. Um, I could, I wouldn't never manage that dog um, and want to live in a situation like that. Um, I don't even like dogs. Um, a friend of mine, Maggie, uh, she's been on here a couple times, has a dog that has a repeat bite history on her. She, she has been bitten by this dog. And so she's implemented a combination of management and, and avoiding certain situations that trigger the dog to bite, as well as training, obviously, to keep the dog from feeling the need to bite. However, the dog still has breakthrough moments when he does bite. I personally would never live with that dog. Um, that's a personal choice. It's not a judgment. Uh, she has a great relationship with this dog and it works for her. And to each their own is kind of my policy. But I could never live with a dog who bit me. Um, not, not purposely. I've had dogs bite me by accident or you know maybe they made a choice at that moment that was ill-advised. But I ensure that training going forward will ensure that that doesn't happen again. And by that, I mean, Dice injured himself very badly last January. He, he catastrophically injured his, his rear leg. And when I was, I think, palpating it or looking at it, he reached around with his mouth and put his mouth on me. He didn't bite hard. It was very controlled. And, you know, but that is theoretically, legally, quote unquote, a bite. But he was excused as it were it hurt and he was frightened that I was going to hurt him and he had every reason to have that behavior so in that case I'm not going to hold it against him as it were and obviously management going forward would be if your dog has a big gaping hole in their leg you probably shouldn't mess with it unless you muzzle the dog that's management 
So anyway, I think I've belabored this to the point of no return. Um, so I want to just explain that management is not the easy way out in most cases if we're using it in conjunction with training. And in fact, it makes training far more successful and far more likely to succeed if we fail to manage altogether and just try to train in the absence of management. That is oftentimes a recipe for failure. And I don't like to set my dogs up or my human learners up for failure. So understand that we can manage situations, we can train situations, we can choose a combination of both. And it's up to your drug trainer and you and your lifestyle to kind of find that perfect blend of what works for you. So thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, share, subscribe. The big thing is tell your friends. If if you're a dog geek and you have friends who are kind of geeky too and and or newer dog trainers, I guess is more who we're speaking to. If you kind of want to know more about your dog, please recommend it to your friends who also want to know more about their dog. We try not to get deep into the weeds. We try to keep it pretty easily accessible to people who are Um, not professional dog trainers. We hope that you guys enjoy it. Um, You can reach out to me on Facebook. I'm at Empire Ridge Ranch, and that's on Facebook. Uh, You can always reach out there. And I hope you guys all have a great day and happy training.